right, and we are back once again. Brother Kevin, how's life at this point? Man, life is fantastic, brother. How are you doing? Doing well. We've got a lot going on. We're getting ready to move our office next weekend. We're going to be moving my practice into a new building that we purchased. I've got some finishing touches to put on the building this evening. And it seems like I always wait until the hottest part of the year to move. Like anytime we've moved our house or moved our business, it's always seems like it's always either been in June or in August. It's ridiculous. And I think about how hot it is outside, and I'm reminded of what one of my wife's aunts would commonly say during these hot Oklahoma summer days. You'd talk about or remark about how hot it was. Oh, it's just so hot out here. And she'd say, yeah, well, it's not as hot as hell's going to be. <laughs> And that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be picking up where we left off last time. We're going to be talking about the fate of the wicked. We're going to be discussing hell and continuing that discussion. And we're going to be discussing this in terms of the idea of eternal conscious torment being a scriptural paradigm or a a reasonable scriptural um, designation for the ultimate fate of the wicked versus annihilationism or eternal destruction, the snuffing out and ceasing to exist of those that are wicked. And the last time we talked, we had a really good discussion on that. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to bring up, but in our super secret method of communicating with one another while we're recording, you said, no, let's hold off on that. Let's devote a whole other episode to that idea and some other ideas. Because to me, the biggest issue, and I didn't mention this in the last podcast because you asked me not to. And I was like, yeah, cool. All right. We'll we'll hold off on that. But to me, the biggest scriptural evidence that we could take away in favor of the idea of eternal conscious torment is the story of rich man and Lazarus found over in the book of Luke. So over in Luke's account, if we, let me turn over there real quick, believe it's around what Luke 16 and I'll go ahead and read that if it's okay with you. Yeah, sure. So, so beginning in verse 19, the Bible says, uh, let's see here. Make sure I'm in the right spot. There we go. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. And then the the story goes on. Abraham speaks to him and then he requests that, you know, that he sent Lazarus back to warn his brothers about this. And Abraham's like, hey, they got Moses and the law and the prophets. Let him hear them. In any case, that verse there, where he says in verse 24, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. This is a passage that I have used and I'm sure you probably used as well. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and assume here that whenever whenever you would preach the idea of eternal conscious torment as it relates to hell, that this would be a passage you would draw on. I've heard it said by other preachers that 
the fact that Lazarus is named in this parable is an indicator that this is likely a true story. Now, I don't go that far. I, I believe this is a parable. I believe this is a fictional story that Jesus uses to establish truth. But I've heard some preachers say that there's a real possibility that since there are actual people named in this story, that this is an actual event that took place that Jesus had divine knowledge of. In any case, though, this is commonly a passage that's used to um, elucidate the teaching of eternal conscious torment being the ultimate fate of the wicked. And we didn't get to that in the last episode, but that's what we're kicking this episode off with. So, well, I, I know that people were chomping at the bit in the last episode because, you know, I'm a formal debater and, or former formal debater, and I, I like starting out with with propositions. Uh, I like to start out with, okay, let's give reasons why I believe this is true, and so that really is what. You could say the first episode was is more of the affirmative proposition to give reasons as to why I believe that hell is a, is a place where people go to to die, that people will be destroyed, not be eternally consciously tormented. So with this episode, we're going to be looking at quite a few things that I know I used to teach and believe and, and others still do as well, and why I'm just no longer convinced that that teaches eternal conscious torment. So let's begin looking at Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. And you're going to be probably shocked to find that I think this is actually the more I studied one of the weaker arguments in favor of hell. I'll explain, or not in favor of hell, but in, in favor of hell being eternally conscious torment forever and ever and ever. And we're going to get into that a little bit later on what I believe some of the stronger arguments are in favor of an eternal conscious torment. This one I do not believe is a strong argument at all, and that may shock a lot of people, but the reason being is very simple. The first thing I do when I tell people about Luke 16 and the rich man and Lazarus is I, I do what you just did. I encourage them first to read it. So first go and read Luke 16. And after they read it, this is what I say. If you read that whole story, whether you believe it's a parable, whether you believe it's a literal story, honestly, all that really doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, here's what we're left with. This absolutely has nothing to do with the final fate of the wicked. And here's how we can know that. In the New Testament, the word Hades is actually the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word Sheol, and we talked about that a little bit last week. It's just yeah. the grave. Uh, these terms never refer to the final fate of the wicked in the Old Testament, and they don't refer to the final fate of the wicked in the New Testament. It always refers to either the grave or some sort of temporal intermediate area before the final reward or punishment is meted out. Something and like so, a cosmic waiting room for those awaiting judgment. Yeah, and then that is is actually how a lot of people still view it today. Now, there's a lot of debate over the Hadean realm, and I don't really want to get into that. I'm just going to assume all this is true. Okay, <laughs> let's just let's just assume it because I want to give this argument as much meat as we possibly can to come to the conclusion it doesn't matter because this is not the final fate of the wicked. So if you look at this story and you press everything in this story as being 100% literal, which I know most people don't do. In fact, I don't know anybody who says all of this is literal, but let's just assume that everything in this story is 100% literal. If that's the case, this is still an intermediate holding area. Uh, this is not seen as taking place after the final resurrection, but beforehand. This isn't, a, this isn't some sort of futuristic story that Jesus is saying, hey, here's, here's what's going to happen at the end of time. If you take this literal, this is what's happening right now, waiting the final judgment, not the final judgment. So 
this story really just doesn't really do much as, and I know that that, that doesn't sound, you know, I'm not giving you a billion verses and in five different arguments because really it's just not necessary. Uh, unless this story is talking about the final fate of the wicked, which I don't know anybody who believes it is, it cannot be used to prove that uh, eternal conscious torment in hell is the final fate of the wicked. Well, even if that is the case, and and to me it seems like if you're going to make the case that this is a reference to the eternal fate of the wicked, that there would need to be something either contextually found within the story or the parable itself that indicates that such is the case. But, you know, like you said, even those who make this and make the literal case are speaking in terms of the here and now. This is going on now. But, and this this may get, I don't know if esoteric is the right word, it may get just a little bit too heady maybe, but you know, what about the idea that this is a realm that exists outside of time? Because if this is a realm that exists outside of the normal constraints of time, well then couldn't the argument be made then that this maybe is speaking to eternal conscious torment, but well, I think I just answered my own argument because if this is a realm <laughs> that exists outside of time, well, then you're not going to be spending any time there. I mean, what? Why even wait there? What are you waiting for? If that's the case, well, and and as and as always, though, I'm not finished yet, you know, because I, well, I of do, course not. I, I do. <laughs> You've got that gift of gab, baby. Keep it be, going. Because with Lazarus, I do like to first point out what does and doesn't matter, but that doesn't mean that other parts are not interesting because. When you study this story, I, I, I'm sure that that answer is probably just not very satisfactory to most people. Not because I don't think it addresses the question, but because it just feels like there needs to be more there. You know, if you look at Luke 16, you're like, okay, that's not about eternal consciousness, or that's not about final punishment. Therefore, I cannot take this passage and relate it to final punishment. That pretty much answers that question. But I think we can go a little bit further to take some of the sting out of the traditional argument of the rich man and Lazarus. And when I say the sting, I don't mean I'm trying to soften the Bible because I'm some postmodernistic liberal, you know, hippie or anything like that. What but, a hack. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what a hack. But because I think we need to look at this in its context. And that's something that we always, 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 always push. So I do believe this is a parable. And you may mention, I believe just a moment ago that you too believe that uh, this is a parable. And yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons why I do want to talk about this for just a moment, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time, but there's three major arguments as to why people believe this is a real story. And these were the arguments I used to use. First of all, because Jesus didn't call it a parable. Second of all, because um, Jesus uses real names such as Abraham and Lazarus. And then finally, uh, I believe that this really you know, meant that this was truth and this is what was going to happen because even if it was a parable, Jesus never used a parable to illustrate a non-truth. He always used parables to illustrate truths, and you brought that up just a moment ago. Here's the problems with all three of those arguments. The first one, saying that Jesus never calls this a parable, is being very inconsistent with our understanding of parables today. Because there are clear times when, while Jesus does say he is about to tell a parable, there are many times when he gives a parable that he doesn't actually explicitly say, and I'm about to tell a parable. But we know it's a parable. For example, Luke 7, 41 through 43, Luke 10, 25 through 37, Luke 15, 11 through 32, Luke 16, 1 through 8, also Matthew 25, 1 through 3, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. There are a host of times Jesus tells a parable where he doesn't explicitly say that it's not, or, or where he doesn't explicitly say it is a parable. But that doesn't mean it's not a parable. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's it's recognizing genre for what it is. I mean, if you yeah. if you're sitting there and you're reading a story and you have no picture on the cover, you have no title on the cover, you have no idea what the story is that you're about to pick up and read, and you open up the cover and the first line you see is "Once upon a time," you know what you're reading based on that information. Just that very first line tells you what genre you're involved in. Yeah. So and, so the second argument that Jesus uses real names in this story. Uh, therefore, it must be a real story is, is pretty funny <laughs> because yeah. this is what I call self-imposed criteria. Uh, why do we assume just because Jesus used a real name that it must mean that it really happened? Uh, I could just as well assume that the story, uh, if any story has a literal location or literal group of people, it must be a real story, not a parable. Uh, yet there are stories that once again are accepted as parables, but speak of real places or real groups of people. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan speaks of the Samaritan in Jerusalem. Uh, we see in Luke 10, verse 30, we see hear about Jericho. We read about a Levite. We read about uh, all these specific ethnic groups. Does that mean that because he mentioned real places and real ethnic groups that this is a real story? Well, no, and even if you no, take... Yeah, well, even if you take that a step further, how many of his parables begin with a certain man, a certain woman? Yeah. I mean, and if we're not going to recognize that designation of a certain man being a specific man, well, then it, it stands to reason that we could naturally recognize that this is a parable, even if there are specific names named. Well, I, that doesn't necessarily indicate that this is a literal event that took place. Yeah, and that's the problem with self-imposed criteria. I, I could qualify or disqualify any story I wanted to from being a parable just because I wanted to. I, for example, I could say, well, uh, the parable of the witch and the, the wise and foolish virgins is really not a parable uh, because it mentions virgins, and anything that mentions virgins must be a real story. Well, that's pretty nonsensical because all I'm doing is just giving you my self-imposed imposed criteria. And then yeah. the, third, the third argument that parables always illustrate a truth. That is true, but that doesn't mean it always illustrates the facts or the, not the facts, but the specifics mentioned in the story. For example, in Joshua 9, 7 through 15, uh, Jotham tells a parable about trees going to anoint a king over themselves. And the trees have this discussion with a fig tree and a vine and, and bramble. And, and we see that this was a parable given in order to teach a truth but it wasn't teaching the truth that trees were really talking to vines and bramble. So yeah. that's that's something that we have to to watch out for as well. Bottom line is, I don't think this is a parable. I think this, or I don't think this is a real story. I do think this is a parable. And I think it's a parable with highly figurative language. But here's something else that a lot of people don't know, because I know personally, I didn't know, and the people I've spoken with about this, this was new to them as well, unless they spent much time studying this. The plot of the rich man and Lazarus was actually well-known folklore before really? and during the time of Jesus. And so this was actually stories told before Jesus came on the scene, historically documented, that this was a common plot. And Hugo Grisman, he cites a Greek parallel from a first century Egyptian papyrus, and he says there's at least seven versions of the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Jewish literature, most of these predating Jesus. So it's very possible that Jesus actually repurposed a common folktale already already very familiar to his audience, right? So in other words, what he's doing is he's taking a, a story that's, that's familiar, but he's not actually just repeating it. He's putting his own Christocentric twist to it. And in this story, the fates are actually reversed because usually the rich man, was the one favored by God in the fables. But in this one, Jesus turns the fable on its head 
And he teaches that the rich man is actually not the one who was favored by God. It was the poor man favored by God. And many have interpreted this to be understood as the Jews and the Gentiles. That is where the Jews have had God's blessings. Now the Gentiles will begin to experience uh, God's blessings, even though, according to the Jews, they think that because they've been rich all these years in God's blessings, they deserve it. So I don't really want to spend too much time trying to parse that out. But the point is, is that I don't even think personally, I don't even think this has to do with uh, judgment of any kind per se. <laughs> well, it's it's so interesting that you bring that up because that falls in line and in perfect lockstep with the thematic trajectory that you see in scripture anyway. And it, it's it's so easy for us to take different passages and different ideas and to foist our pet doctrines and read those into it. I mean, it, it's almost as if we engage in eisegetical readings Whenever we come to passages like this, and because we have heard about eternal conscious torment forever, we're seeing eternal conscious torment in this parable. So naturally, that's what must be taught. And without the context, that's that's the conclusion you're going to arrive at. That's really interesting, though, that this is one of those stories that that was well known that Jesus took and basically made fan fiction out of. He just you know turned it on its head to teach an eternal actual truth as it relates to the spiritual kingdom. To me, that makes a whole lot more sense in line with what we see within scripture itself. So do you have much more that you want to enumerate on that? Because there's a, another point that I'd like to get to if we can. Yeah, I could, but I know we want to cover quite a few questions. So I think that's sufficient. If I would just summarize it, if someone says, well, what about Luke 16? My first my first response would be, this is not about eternal. Uh, this is not about final judgment, uh, much less eternal conscious torment in final judgment. If this story was literal, it would be only talking about what is what is taking place temporarily until final judgment. Uh, and then my second response would be, but I don't even think that's what it's talking about. I believe this is a parable that Jesus used, which was a common basic plot that the Jews would have understood, and he's teaching a Jew-Gentile lesson of why uh, they should accept the Gentiles and why the why the Gentiles are going to receive God's blessings. And that that makes a lot of sense, but you know what's going to happen. We're going to get people accusing us, oh, listen to that, Kevin and Lee, they're teaching Catholic doctrine now. They're teaching purgatory. Did you hear what they said? they that's it, it, a bad joke. I'm sorry. But no, no, that does make a lot of sense, though. And it seems like that 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 Jew Gentile, that's a reasonable explanation. I like it. Well, and, and, and I did have one more one more small little point that really kind of is just the icing on the cake on this. If you look at the end of the parable or if you believe it is a story, whatever, of the rich man and Lazarus, you will see that the, the man says, can I go back and tell tell my brothers? And Abraham responds with. You know, they have the law, and, and, and he says, even if a man is resurrected from the dead, they will not believe. What do we see with, with the Jews? That even though Jesus was resurrected, predominantly the Jews still rejected him. So I could go into a lot more detail with why I believe that's what the parable is talking about. But, we might have to just have a standalone yeah. <laughs> episode just for that, because that type of stuff is fascinating to me, man. Those plot threads and everything else. And I've got something, once we're once we're done recording this, I've got something I need to run by you. So just remind me of that. And you listeners, you'll just have to be in suspense until we do that episode. All right, so, let's get on to the next, because we got, I know we got a lot of stuff to cover. Yeah, we got, we got a lot more to cover, and we're trying to keep these short. So we're probably going to fail, but that's okay. We love you all anyway. So even with the rich man and Lazarus, there's still some indicators in Scripture that eternal conscious torment could be the final fate of the wicked. And one of the passages that comes to mind, I know there's another one in Revelation, but it's Revelation 14. 
And in Revelation 14 and verses 9 through 11, the scriptures read, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, and we won't get into that mark right now. Verse 10, He himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, in Revelation 20, there's a similar passage to that. Yeah, it's verse 10. Go ahead and read that. Well, let me get to it first. Okay. I'm, I'm not there yet. so Because that's, that's the second, Revelation 20.10, and then we'll talk about both of these. And this is speaking about the end of all time. We can say the rich man and Lazarus isn't speaking to that, but Revelation certainly is. In Revelation 20 and verse 10, the Bible says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If that doesn't mm -hmm. speak to eternal conscious torment, brother... I don't know what does. I mean, the, that'll preach the Bible right there. Says baby. It, that settles it, man. That I believe settles it. it. The Bible so, says it. I believe it. That's it. So this, this again, that's, this is going to be one of those arguments and passages that I just, if I was going to argue eternal conscious torment, these would not be the passages I would go to argue. And, and I am going to get there and explain where, where I do believe there is some, uh, I'm not going to say, legitimacy because I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, but I could see why people could, could come to that conclusion. If someone is a Bible student, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory sense at all, uh, I do not, most Bible students I know do not use these passages to teach eternal conscious torment. Well, why um, is that? Even the ones that I know who believe in eternal conscious torment, the ones that I disagree with and disagree with me, who I've had conversation with, they actually do not use these passages and they kind of shake their head when people do use these passages. So let me back up, first of all, just to say something that, that you made mention of, because there may be some people listening who, who disagreed when you said this. So there are some people who believe that Revelation has already come to pass 100 yeah. um, percent. I have some friends who fall into that category. I'm not one of them. But if people do believe that the events in Revelation completely have already come to pass, then obviously we this isn't even going to affect them at all. But for the, for the majority of people, including myself, I do believe that Revelation is speaking of, of ultimately future events that are going to be taking place. And here in these passages, I do think this is talking about final judgment and final reward. So I do believe that. So I'm not going to try to get out of this by saying, oh, well, I think all these things have already take, taken place, so I don't have to deal with it. No. So why do people, some of the best Bible students I know who do believe in eternal conscious torment, refuse to use these passages to teach that. Um, well, one of the reasons why is because of the context and the apocalyptic language that is actually found in the book of Revelation. I mean, the whole book of Revelation, if you're a Bible student at all, then you know the whole book of Revelation is figurative and symbolic. Now, there are times in which it is being interpreted. There are times in which John himself will say, this means that, and this is what this really means, right? He'll actually kind of interpret it for you. But by and large, this is an apocalyptic filled uh, book uh, of, of Jewish imagery. And Chris Date, he's actually a well-known Bible teacher and debater from RethinkingHell.com, who also believes in annihilationism. And uh, he actually used these passages to start one of, he's, he's done a lot of debating, and he actually started one of his debates with these two passages in his affirmative to prove 
that the final fate of the wicked is destruction and death, not eternal conscious torment. <laughs> so if that seems odd to most people, let me explain why that's the case. So, well, it seems right. odd to me because it seems like if you're going to have any passages that teach that teaches this, these seem to be really straightforward. So I'm really eager to hear what your answer is to that. Yeah, so, so we begin with pointing to the fact that the whole book of Revelation, as I just said, is written in signs, symbols, and Jewish apocalyptic language. We see that in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. John just says, I'm about to write these things in signs and symbols. So this means when we are reading something in this type of language, it actually does not mean what it says. And that in and of itself is a very, very important point to note, because if I just told you, I'm about to tell you some things in signs and symbols, and it's going to represent something else. And I tell you a sign and symbol, I just told you whatever that sign and symbol is, is not really what I'm saying. I'm saying something else. Yeah, it's coded language. Yes. So, for example, if I told you, uh, like in Revelation 13, the Bible talks about the ten horns and the seven heads of the beast in Revelation, and I told you, well, the reason I believe that 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 there's going to be ten horns is because Revelation 13 says there's ten horns and there's seven heads. So the reason I believe in a literal beast who has ten horns and seven heads is because of Revelation 13. You would probably come back to me and say, Kevin, the reason why I don't believe in a literal beast with ten horns and seven heads, is because this is apocalyptic language that means something else. It's representing something else. And that's exactly what we see with these passages in uh, in Revelation that deal with hell. So the very fact that the specific imagery is being used to describe the punishment of the wicked means that it isn't literal, and it does stand for something else. Now, if this seems too simplistic, let me give you some more reason to believe this is the case. Let's take, for example, the first passage that speaks about punishment. Uh, this is Revel uh, Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And here we see John, I'm not going to reread it again because you already read it, but here John talks about the smoke rising up forever and ever and how they're going to have, uh, you know, how they have no rest. All right. So if I take this passage literal, then certainly this implies eternal conscious torment. <laughs> no doubt about it. If I go to Revelation 14, 9 through 11 and say, this is a literal passage that is meant to be interpreted, read, and applied literally, sure. That's exactly what it means. Here's the problem with that. The book has already told me that that's not how I should understand these passages. Furthermore, the same language is used in Isaiah 34, 9 through 10. So the Old Testament is coming back to bite us a little bit, to bite the traditional view, because the traditional view just picks up a verse and reads it. The, the verse that I'm espousing as far in some other views, what we're trying to figure out is what is the historical Jewish context? How would the Jews have understood this language? Well, the fact of the matter is, if we go to Isaiah 34, 9 through 10, here's what we read. The streams of Eden, of, of Edom, I'm sorry, the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her, soul, and her soil into sulfur and her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. Sounds pretty similar, right? <laughs> incredibly similar yes so, so so here we have uh when we look at this passage there's a stream okay a lake a stream that is filled with pitch and sulfur and ashes and fire and night and day it's not going to be quenched in fact the smoke is rising forever and ever okay sounds almost identical because it is it's 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 saying the exact same thing uh, yeah. it's not word for word identical but it's it's giving the exact same picture image if this was in revelation then we we would be saying this is 
you know, this this is saying the same thing as Revelation uh, 14 is saying. It's the same thing. So what we see is that smoke rising forever is actually a Jewish idiom to signify destruction. The context in Isaiah 34 is speaking about judgment against the kingdom of Edom. Now, I don't have to tell you that Edom does not still have smoke rising there. We know that we can't go to Edom today where say, hey, look, there it is. It's still rising. We still see that 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 stream <laughs> of fire. It's still there. Uh, no, this was a figure of speech to communicate total destruction. Now, I want to also go back to something because I actually for, I can't believe I forgot to use this first last week. When we were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we talked about how Jude 7 says that they were destroyed with everlasting fire. And you go back and you see that that everlasting fire didn't even last 24 day, or 24 hours. It wasn't even a day. It was the result. It signified complete destruction. And here is another passage that actually teaches us that. When we go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, and this is just kind of a little bonus here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. <laughs> okay, so to extinction, you know, that kind of, if, if the Bible says that that settles it, then we can stop right there, but we're not um, because we want to look more <laughs> at context. But here's the thing. When we look at this everlasting fire, it didn't last forever. The everlasting smoke didn't last forever. It all signified destruction, and they understood that. They knew that. No Jew, hundreds of years later, believed that this fire was still rising that there, or this smoke was still there. In fact, 2 Peter 2.6 says that this was extinction. They, that, that is what is waiting the ungodly, is extinction. So Jesus, remember, Jesus talked about Isaiah 66, 24 to describe the final fate of the wicked as being destruction. And so John is pulling from the very same prophet to teach the same thing, destruction for the wicked. Yeah, it's a Hebrew idiom, and that's that's really interesting. And, and we understand that even in our common tongue today, if you're sitting at the doctor's office and you're having to wait, or if you're getting your tires rotated at the shop or whatever, and you're sitting there, you're thinking, man, this is taking a long time. Man, this is taking forever. Or you get home and you're like, baby, I'm so sorry. I'm late getting home. I got caught up with someone. They just started talking. I couldn't get away from them. They were, they, it's like they, they were talking forever and ever and ever. They weren't literally talking forever. It denotes a, a long passage of time well, in, in that sense, but it doesn't literally mean forever. Well, it's powerful enough that this passage is a, is a, is in a figurative context. It's it's apocalyptic language. I don't know of any Christian who denies Revelation as apocalyptic language. But what makes it even stronger is that it's the same type of apocalyptic language that we see used by a Jewish prophet in Isaiah 34, 9, and 10 to communicate destruction, not eternal conscious torment. So if I told you that I'm about to write to you in signs and symbols— and the signs and symbols I, I write to you are the same signs and symbols Isaiah spoke of, and everyone understood Isaiah was speaking of destruction, then as a Jew, what do you think you would interpret that to mean? You're going to interpret it the same way. I mean, it's <laughs> going to be a destruction, especially if that's something that's already encoded. And whenever I taught anatomy and physiology, one of the things that I would do to teach new or lofty concepts to my students is I would tie new information to old information. And that's what John's doing here. He's borrowing that language from Isaiah to tie this concept that he's speaking of and to speak of that in a way, in those signs and symbols, in a way that his audience would understand. And and I want to be careful. I don't want to overstate the case and say, I know for a fact John is is thinking of Isaiah when he's saying this, because I don't know what's in the mind of John. But based upon the information we have, 
this makes a lot of good sense. And this seems to be a very fair reading to the context of not only the book of Revelation, but also the context of the day, the context of how the Jews would have understood these things. Now, I want to go, though, because some people say, "Okay, I get that with Revelation chapter uh, 14, 9 and 11. But what about Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, Kevin? How are you going to deal with that? So let's let's kind of jump to that. So in in regard to Revelation, unless there's anything else you want to say about. No, no, that's it. I was, okay. No, I was going to ask you, well, what about Revelation 20 and verse 10? Yeah, so and let's I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm just going to let you say it. <laughs> so first of all, pretty much the same, the same primer, you know, we've already given is that this is all figurative language, but I want to break it down a little bit because this is going to be very interesting. And this is how Chris Date pretty much used this as an affirmative to teach that eternal conscious torment is not only false, but that the wicked are going to going to die and they're going to be destroyed. And, and, and this passage actually teaches that. So in Revelation 2010, uh, this text speaks of the devil and the beast and the false prophet. And it talks about how they're going to be thrown into the fire, the, the beast and the false prophet, where they're going to be tormented forever and ever. Okay. So the inconsistency first can be seen in how people apply this passage. They understand that the beast and the false prophet are not real, are not literal. They're representative of something else. They don't believe that there's really going to be one beast and just one false prophet that's going to be thrown in this lake of fire. They, they understand that the beast and false prophet represent something else. But then they want to turn around, and I did the same thing, so I'm not pointing my fingers you know, too, too heavy at people because I did the same thing. But then they turn around and they want the torment to be something that is literally forever and and literally something that is going to take place this eternal conscious torment. So on the one hand they're going to say well the beast and false prophet prophet that's all symbolic and representative to mean something else. But the idea of them being tormented forever and ever now that's real. <laughs> we need to apply that literally. So that's <laughs> very unfair. That's very that's inconsistent at best. So here here's though the first problem with trying to make this uh, a literal passage. So let's even assume people do that. Let's even assume all right, fine. We'll give it to you. We'll say that if you want to try to apply this literally, all right, let's 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 go down that path and see what happens. So, should it be literal, should it be figurative? Okay? Here's why I don't think it should be literal. Let's start with the lake of fire and sulfur. Is this literal? We already know that the beast and the false prophet are not literal, so check, that's not literal. How about the lake of fire and the sulfur? Well, we've already discussed that a little bit in Isaiah, how there was this stream of fire, that there was this stream of pitch and, and the soul was being turned, the soil was being turned, that's my Alabama accent, soul, soil was being turned, <laughs> <laughs> was being turned into sulfur and the land becoming pitch. Okay. So we already see that this kind of idea is already seen there. So that to an extent already answers that. But I believe it's figurative because aside from the context, the streams of Edom, as I said, are spoken of as turning into pitch, fire, and sulfur and how the smoke will not be quenched and the fire is going to rise forever. So all that's figurative, signifying destruction. So it seems like we can still go back to, to Isaiah and draw a parallel. But let's even go further. If the lake of fire is figurative, what about the things being thrown into the lake of fire? Now, most people want to focus on Satan and his angels, but think about the other enemies. Think about the beast, which is symbolic, which interestingly enough in Revelation 17, 8, and 11 says that the beast is going to be destroyed. So people come to that and say, well, is the beast going to be destroyed or is the beast going to suffer forever and ever and ever? Well, if you are like myself, you interpret it one way and say, well, that means the beast is going to be destroyed. But if you believe in eternal conscious torment, you believe that destruction is symbolic of eternal conscious torment. Uh, does that make sense? So in other words, when, when I read this passage, I'm going to say that eternal conscious torment in this passage is symbolic and it's a metaphor to represent destruction. 
when people go to Revelation 17, 8, and 11, where it says the beast is destroyed, they believe that's a metaphor representing eternal conscious torment. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. So it, 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 it's almost like you're picking and choosing yeah, so how you're going to apply right. metaphors. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the question is, you have the beast seen being as destroyed. You have the, the beast seen as being, I'll go ahead and say, eternally conscious of torment. So the question is, which is it? Well, do you just pick and choose? Is that is that what I'm affirming? Is that what I'm uh, I'm endorsing? No, I'm not saying you pick and choose what you want. I'm saying that there is going to be another passage in Revelation that is going to interpret all of this for us and actually is going to say, this is what this means. So well, which beast, one is it? <laughs> so the beast, which is symbolic, okay, is seen being thrown in the fire. But here's what's interesting. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, death is even seen being thrown into this lake of fire. Now, does that mean that death is going to be kept alive <laughs> and tormented for eternity? Is, is death itself going to die or is death itself going to continue to live? Well, death by its very nature cannot continue to, to go on because that means that death would not be destroyed, that death would still be continuing on. Now, that final enemy Paul talks about yeah, still around. Jesus really didn't defeat it. So we know that death being thrown at this lake of fire does not mean that it's going to continue. It's just, God's just going to beat it up forever. It means that it's going to be no more. <laughs> So it's 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 silly and nonsensical when we get into this figurative language and we try to apply it literally. Otherwise, you have death being kept alive and tormented forever and ever. And that we we would just say that just sounds stupid. But we're we're literally applying that same logic when we say, well, let's let's push the rest of the lake of fire as being eternal conscious torment. So how are we to understand all this? Okay, the book of Revelation actually defines all of this for us in Revelation twenty verse fourteen. All of this is said to represent the second death. So all of these things are being used in signs and symbols to refer to one thing, and that is the final death. Death itself will be destroyed and be no more. In other words, there will be no more death. The beast will be destroyed. Satan and his angels will be destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed. They will all be thrown in this lake of fire. And what does this represent? According to Revelation 20, verse 10, John says all of this is the second death. So if being cast into the lake of fire is defined as the second death, and the lake of fire is symbolic of death, then John is making the point in common Jewish apocalyptic language that the wicked are going to be cast into this hell fire, this lake of fire, and they will no longer exist, but instead they will experience a second and final death. Because remember, why is it called the second death? Well, all have sinned and fallen short, and all of us are going to die. All of us are going to die. God is going to resurrect both the wicked and the righteous, and what's going to happen to the wicked? They are going to experience the second death and be no more. Well, that's pretty solid. That's a really solid case, but I can't help but wonder about the passages that state that there are going to be degrees of suffering in hell, because that's something that comes to mind too. You know, we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah earlier, and we remember whenever Jesus and his, we remember whenever Jesus and his disciples are traveling, they come to different cities that reject them. And, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but Jesus says, you know, to some of the Jews that were rejecting him in that day, that it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day than for the cities who had rejected him. And then, you know, we referenced second Peter earlier, you know, there's a passage in, in second Peter. Uh, oh, where is it? Somewhere around 
verse 20. Yeah. For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they're again entangled with them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So that seems to imply, you know, a greater judgment or a greater degree of condemnation. And if, if eternal conscious torment isn't the thing and it is eternal destruction or annihilationalism, then if you're annihilated, how can it be any worse for one person than another? And then I also think about what James says, you know, where James speaks of, you know, teachers, you know, people who are called to teach, you know, you're, you know, you're held to a higher standard, you know, you're in danger of a stricter judgment. So what do we make of passages like that under the paradigm of annihilationalism? Because it seems like those teach different degrees of suffering, which would require an eternal persistence of the soul of the damned. Yeah, so I think that when you first look at this, and there's going to be different people who answer this in just different ways depending upon who you specifically ask. So I'll kind of make mention of some of those, and I'll tell you what I believe. So you're going to have some people who just look at that who are annihilationists like myself and just really don't even see much of a need to deal with it because the only reason why that would present a problem is if you already believe in eternal conscious torment or if you believe that those particular passages are embedded with eternal conscious torment. If you don't even believe in eternal conscious torment, then talking about degrees of punishment is not going to uh, implicitly mean that they're that it's not going to implicitly mean that eternal conscious torment is, is part of that suffering. Does yeah, that it's make another, sense? yeah. It's another presupposition. Yeah, it's another, so, it's, it's almost like another eisegetical exercise. Yeah, say, Saying that something is going to be worse for somebody else doesn't mean, doesn't automatically mean eternal conscious torment. <laughs> In other words, if, if there are two people on trial and I say it's going to be worse for this person than the other on trial, Nobody's going to come away from that and say, did you know that Kevin just said that that person's going to be tortured forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end? Nobody automatically comes to that <laughs> conclusion. So the only reason that this presents any problem at all is if you believe that saying that something is going to be worse than something else is, is, is code for eternal conscious torment, and it's just not. So uh, that being said, I do, as being the kind of inquisitive person I am, to me, that's not enough. I like to dig a little bit deeper. So... When, when I was looking at these passages and studying these several years ago and, and really making my change, what I realized is these present just as much problem for people who believe in eternal conscious torment as they do for people who believe in annihilationism. How so? Well, because my question would be, if you believe in eternal conscious torment, how is it going to be worse for one person than it is somebody else? If both people are going to be suffering in fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, how is it going to be better for one person than it is for the other? Well, um, maybe and, Britney Spears is being played on a loop for one of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it is. I mean, and my question is, why would it matter? If somebody believes in a literal conscious torment in hell, and you believe that every wicked person is going to be burning... Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Is it really going to matter if God's going to say, but it's not going to be as bad as other people. It could always be worse. Really? (laughs) I don't really think that's, you know, that really poses a problem for people who believe it. Because what's worse than being burned forever and ever and ever? Like like you said, I mean, what does that even mean? So I I think that first of all, this isn't just one of those passages people can go to and go, boom, how do you answer this? Because I think that this presents a problem 
for, for any exegete of what exactly is Jesus talking about here. And quite frankly, unless someone um, believes they're infallible, there is a lot of disagreement on what Jesus means. Now, some people on both sides of the spectrum, those who believe in eternal conscious torment and those who believe in annihilationism, simply say that these passages can't really teach one or the other. This passage simply is just saying that Jesus is using hyperbole to say, Boy, if it was it was bad for Simon Moore, but it's going to be bad for you too. You're not going to get away with this. This is going to, you're going to, you're going to suffer judgment too. So, in other words, it could be that perhaps God, and this is what some people believe, He always parallels it to like Tyre and 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 um, Sodom Sidon. and Gomorrah and Sidon. Well, when you see those passages, they basically had opportunities to repent, especially Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Abraham, right? He was like, "All right, God, can you can, can you do it for this?" And they kind of go back and forth with this this you know, game of, of kind of like a salesman. Well, what about this? What about this? And finally, okay, not 10 people, if there's 10 people. Well, it appears that what Jesus is saying is, since I've come to you, there's not going to be no negotiating. Uh, while these other cities, they kind of had a chance to change. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that these people didn't have a chance to change, but Jesus is saying is, I've come to you, you're not changing. If you're not going to change when the Messiah is here, it's it, there's going to be no tolerance for you. There's going to be no negotiating on, well, what about this and what about this? Okay, that's one explanation. Another explanation, and this is my view, is that I believe that there are actually going to be degrees of suffering for the wicked. I actually believe that. And I believe that because I think you see not only the passages in Matthew 11, 22 and 24, and Luke 10, 13 and 15, Matthew 21, 41, Luke 11, 29 through 32, the passages that you talked about. But the torment, I believe, for the wicked is going to ultimately be something that they experience before being destroyed. And I think this can also be seen in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see this in Matthew 8, 11, uh, Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 13, 30, and I I mean, I could read off all these, but you know they're there. So when you see this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth, it oftentimes is referring to the person who is doing the killing. In Job 16.9, Lamentation 2.16, Psalm 35.16, and in Acts 7, before they killed Stephen, um, uh, you know, before, before uh, they killed Stephen, they were gnashing their teeth, right? I don't know if you remember that or not. But yeah, yeah. we have to ask, well, what does that signify? So in Edward Fudge's book, the fire that consumes, he brings this up. He says, when you look at the Old Testament and you see this phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth or the gnashing of teeth, he says, we see this in Psalm 112 where it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, whom it describes in verse two and nine. David assures us that even in darkness, light dawns from the upright, but he comes to Psalm's final verse where it says, the wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth, be destroyed and waste away. And he'll come to nothing. And that's in verse 10. So the idea is that there's still going to be a period of suffering. I don't know what that looks like. I have no idea. I'm not even going to try to pretend. But I do believe that there is going to be different levels of punishment with the end result always being destruction. And the reason being is because God only gives eternal life to those who follow him. But that doesn't mean that God cannot keep people alive for a period of time. That doesn't mean they're going to have eternal life, but I do believe that there are going to be different levels of punishment. Now, are you ready for this, Lee? I'm ready, baby. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. What you this, got for me? This comes in now to a whole new argument that is going to really Paul, uh, cause a big challenge and problem to people who believe in the penal substitutionary view of atonement. And if, if you believe in the traditional view of hell, 
most people who believe in the traditional view of hell, which is eternal conscious torment, when I say traditional, I don't mean the earliest. I mean that what has traditionally been known and probably what you believe, most people listening to this believe, is that the reason Jesus died was to was to take the penalty we deserve, right? Yeah. Okay. So that that that's kind of when I say penal substitutionary view of atonement, you may not people may not be familiar with that. All that means is that it's the view of atonement that the reason why Jesus came to earth is because we sinned and he became sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. And he he appeased the wrath of God. He took care of our sin problem for us, right? Would you say that's a fair? Yeah, I would say that's a really good way to to describe penal substitution. So yeah. I, I will say that if you believe in penal substitution, you're about to have another argument to deal with. If you don't believe in penal substitution, you're not. That's okay. But if and and there are different views of atonement. I believe in. I used to believe in penal substitution. I still do to an extent right now, but recently. I was challenged by someone, and I have been reading some uh, different material that is really causing me to have second pause on uh, the the idea of appeasing God's wrath and that Jesus came to to take care of, of God's wrath. So I'm not going to get into all that because that's a completely different story. But That's another podcast for another time. If you, I've done some study on that too, and that'll be a fun one, brother. But if you do believe in penal substitution, if you do believe Jesus paid the penalty that sinners deserve— you have a huge dilemma on your hands if you believe in eternal conscious torment. And here's why. <laughs> I was going to say, because I'm not seeing the dilemma. So what's the dilemma? Is Jesus currently being eternally consciously tormented as we speak? <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> now, hold on. Let me let me kind of talk this through first, because this is one of those things where... <laughs> so wow. If, if the price for sin is eternal conscious torment... Jesus did not pay it. If Jesus did pay the pay the cost of sin, then the cost of sin cannot be eternal conscious torment because Jesus is not being eternally consciously tormented. Here is usually the rebuttal to that. They'll say, well, "Yeah, Kevin, but Jesus is still not dead." Yeah, he and wasn't ultimately destroyed and forever and, and ever and, and ever. And that's the whole point of the resurrection. <laughs> Jesus came to this earth to die so that he could be resurrected to show he had power over death. Not to stay dead, but to show he had power over death. Jesus literally died. If, if you and, and I get into, sometimes I get into discussion with people, and people, because they're so bent on proving eternal conscious torment, they actually will go to the, say, well, Jesus actually didn't really die then. Yeah, he did. Like Jesus really died. That's that's kind of the whole message of Christianity. Don't don't lose your Christianity over a belief on hell, please. You know, it's like yeah. Je so so Jesus came to this earth and he died. People say, well, yeah, but he's not still dead. Of course he's not, because he overcame the grave, because he conquered death. Jesus could not conquer eternal conscious torment other than being continuously consciously tormented. That's the only way Jesus could pay for our sins if the sin or the, the, the wages of our sin is eternal conscious torment. So the very fact that Jesus is not being eternally consciously tormented to this day means that it cannot be the case because Jesus could not overcome eternal conscious torment because part of eternal conscious torment means eternal. it ends. <laughs> yeah. So here, here's where things get really Really interesting, because most of the people who believe in eternal conscious torment are my justice people. They're my justice guys and, and my justice guy, girls out there. They, they want justice. They want to see justice. And I'm with you. I'm a justice person, too. I want to see justice. 
Here's the thing. Was it just for Jesus to go to the cross and take care of all the sins of the world when all he did, and, and by the way, I don't want to downplay what Jesus didn't say, all he did, but I'm comparing it with eternal consciousness. When all he did was suffer and die on the cross, and yet that appeased God's wrath, that was enough. If that's enough, then we have to wonder why then would God keep sinners alive forever and ever and ever and ever and ever to pay for their sins when clearly that's not the cost of sins based upon what Jesus did to pay for sins. Well, if that is the case, it speaks more to our perspective of the nature of God than really it does anything else, which even, and and that's the thing through this discussion, it, the destructive ideology, the the annihilationism, it makes a lot of sense. And really at this stage for me, I want to study this and read about this more. It makes more sense to me now than eternal conscious torment did. Well, because that, well, that statement that you just made is a big part of it because if Jesus satisfies God's wrath, which I'm not really a um, penal substitutionary atonement guy, but we'll get into that in, in another podcast. But if that is the cost that was paid. And if that is the system under which this operates, then why would God keep people alive in order to torment them forever and ever and ever? That yeah. speaks to a sadistic God. Well, that speaks you, to a God of wrath, not a God of love. You can, ne- you can no longer say people go to hell because of the justice of God. Because if, if, if Jesus could have died and that appeased the justice of God, we're no longer talking about the justice of God when we talk about eternal conscious torment. Now, now we're talking of something that resembles more of Satan than we do a loving God. Because, and I, now, yeah. I, now I'm very careful. I'm not saying people who believe that, who teach that, believe that. But I'm saying if you're consistent in your argument, and you believe that Jesus paid a the price for sins, that sinners, if they don't change and if if, if they don't turn to God, will have to pay themselves. You're actually saying that Jesus took the whole, all the sins of the world. And he didn't have to experience eternal conscious torment, but because of my own sins, just one person, I now is, am going to have to experience eternal conscious torment. That's no longer the justice of God because the justice of God does not demand eternal conscious torment. If it did, Jesus could have not overcome eternal conscious torment because he would still be there being eternally consciously tormented. What we see in Scripture is, and well, we'll get to that in a moment, but what we see is that <laughs> justice demands death. And that's exactly yeah. why Jesus died. But how am I tying this back into the idea of what well, it would be better for? Or the idea of it would have been better to have to have uh, never heard than it had heard and turn away and all these different things that you brought up. Well, I believe that when you look at what Jesus experienced, he experienced at least to an extent what I think Jesus could be talking about. And that is there was a period of suffering before Jesus died. Keep in mind, the wages of sin is death, but there is also things that go with that, suffering that goes with that death before that death was experienced by Jesus. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to come to 2020, live as a middle-class man, and then die and say, well, I died for the sins of the world, and then I just resurrected myself. That would be pretty easy, right? Yeah, <laughs> that would, yeah. if, if that's all it was, what we see is that death is the final wages of sin, but that there is there is part of that that we see Jesus suffering beforehand. How all that's played out, I don't know. And so since I'm kind of myself in limbo of trying to figure out the atonement theory, and I've kind of seen some good points on both sides, I don't really know. But I do believe if you believe in penal atonement, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, then you are going to really find yourself in a pickle 
uh, when it comes to the justice of God, which is ironic because most of the people who believe in that are the big justice people, and they really find themselves with a God that is not just because he's being inconsistent between how he handled sin with Jesus and how he's going to handle sin with, uh, with, with the wicked. Man, that's powerful. That's super powerful. And that's something I had never considered. Um, another concept that comes up with this idea though, is how the words die, destroy and perish are defined. And that's something that I've heard tossing around from time to time in conversations like this. And we talked a lot about that in the last podcast, so we won't read all those passages again because there's a ton of them out there. But in all of those passages that speak to dying and the destruction of the wicked and then perishing, could it be that those words imply a life of loss rather than a loss of life? I mean, for example, if you have someone, you know, the stock market crashes, their wife leaves them, their truck quits working, their dog, you know, dies and they lose their house. You know, they're going to sit there and even though they're still alive, they're going to say, my life's over. My life has been destroyed. And couldn't it be that that is the idiomatic expression that's being communicated? Because I've heard some people make that point too. So yeah, what are so, your thoughts on that? So most of the people who disagree, who, I, who I'm aware of, who I'm friends with, who are very convicted that the Bible does teach eternal conscious torment, they really appeal to these, to these words. Uh, they really make a... a semantic case um, for why they believe that destruction doesn't really mean destruction and why eternal life doesn't really mean eternal life and while death doesn't really mean death. And, 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 and I will say, I'm going to, I'm going to break this down because I know we're probably going to go a little bit over, but if people are listening this much, they're going to want to hear this. I'm sure they're not going to want to just, Oh, this is it, you know, conclusion. So, because this is, I think probably where most people camp, their arguments if they do believe in eternal conscious torment, and I'm going to explain why they do so, and then I'm going to explain why I don't believe that um, in doing so that they're correct. Now, once again, as we talk about this, I want people to know I'm not condemning anybody. <laughs> I'm not saying that people are stupid or people are foolish or anything like that. I believe this for, for a long time myself, and a lot of smart people disagree with me. But just because a lot of smart, a lot of smart people also believe there's no God, but that doesn't mean I can't hold the position. <laughs> there is a God. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so when I say that, I encourage people to have their own faith. It's easy to copy and paste stuff. It's easy to say, well, this person believes that. Please develop your own faith through this. And that's what I have really tried to do. And so when I say that I don't believe these arguments are very sound, I'm not attacking the person because some of these are my friends who are very smart. They're, they're smarter than me when it comes to the Bible uh, on, on many things. And they're sincere individuals who love the Lord and we're going to spend eternity in heaven together. So I want to just make that point very clear. That being said, let me give you some of the reasons why they believe what they believe, okay? So as Lee already pointed out in our first episode, we talked about how the wicked will ultimately perish. The final fate awaiting the wicked is death and destruction. There's nobody who debates that. Everybody believes that's the case. The question is, how are we defining the words that are translated as destroyed and die and perish? Now, that kind of seems like a silly question because you would say, well, Kevin, in a straightforward way, die, destroyed, and perish means die, destroyed, and perished, right? But yeah. as Lee and I like to talk about, we have to make sure we're going to the context to understand what these words mean. Sometimes that can mean looking up the original word other times, and I won't say other times, always it looks it means looking to the context. So when we look at these words, I want to first acknowledge something. 
there is a truth behind the fact that these words, sometimes translated die, perish, and destroyed, can be used to mean things such as a loss of well-being or no longer being useful or something that is ruined. So there is semantic validity that if we're honest Bible students, we have to acknowledge that, yes, that's true when we look at some of these words. For example, let's look at the, the, the word that is relevant to what we know as destroyed. Okay, the Greek word there is, is, is translated as destroyed. It's the same word that's translated as lost. It's translated as perished. It's translated as kill. It's translated as ruin. So when you pick up your Bible and you see all these different words, it's actually only one Greek word. And the word itself, when you go and you see how it's defined, actually can mean several different things. So it can actually mean destroy, abolished, blotted out, vanishing away, something that is useless, to cancel out, permanent destruction, a miserable end. So we see it doesn't just mean one thing, right? It can mean several different things. So let me give you some examples. This word is seen when we talk about, um, for example, a lost sheep or a lost coin or or a lost son in the parables of Luke 15, where Jesus is talking there. That's actually the same word for destroyed or perished. Well, that sheep really wasn't out of existence. The sun really was, wasn't out of existence. The coin w- didn't perish in the sense of no longer being there. It didn't vanish away. It just was no longer in the presence of, of, of the master, if you will, or the yeah. father or the shepherd. So I am completely transparent in saying that when you look at these words, it is true that they could mean ruined or a loss of well-being or usefulness. They could mean that, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, words have a broad semantic domain, but I'm, I'm thinking I see where you're going with this because so, context has to determine what semantic domain for a particular word is at play within the with, within the meaning of that word. Yeah, that so, so on the other hand, and this is what you're talking about, this same word group, though, can <laughs> mean what we would understand as a straightforward reading. Destroy actually means destroy. It means no more. Die means to cease to live. Uh, blot it out. Vanish away. Those are all definitions within this same word. We see this used in the Bible. We see this in Matthew 12, verse 14, Matthew 21, 41, Mark 9, 22, Luke 6, 9. It was Herod's desire to kill baby Jesus, Matthew 2, 13. Now, Herod didn't want to just ruin Jesus. He didn't want to just take his reputation away. He he didn't want to just take away his usefulness. He literally wanted to take away Jesus' life in the literal sense of bringing his life to an end. That's what he wanted to do. Nobody argues that people just wanted to ruin Jesus' life. They wanted to literally kill him. We also see Jesus spoke of food that perishes, uh, and that's John 6, 27. And Peter spoke of gold that will perish. Well, if food perishes, we don't understand that to mean that the food will continue unless we're talking about a McDonald's hamburger. (laughs) Uh, In in, in that case, it may continue on. But we understand what Jesus is saying is there's going to be food that vanishes away. It blots out. It was here, but it, it ceases to exist. It's no longer there. So what we see are sometimes these words, destroyed, lost, and perish, can mean something that actually continues on. Just a part of it dies or 
the quality of existence goes down. That is true. I firmly admit that. But the honesty on the other side has to be these words can also mean blotted out, vanish away, to cease to exist, to be no more, to completely destroy. So what do we do? Do we just go to the Bible then and pick and choose which definition we want? Because unfortunately, that's what tends to happen with most Bible students. When they find out a word can mean something, they go to a passage and say, it therefore must mean something. Yeah, yeah. And that's another that's another action of presupposition. It's another eisegesis. It's another form of reading into Scripture what we want and seeking to affirm our own ideas and our own ideology and our own theology rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And so let's kind of continue with this uh, looking at the word death, because I've kind of thrown that in there, but death is a separate a separate word here. And the, when we look at the word death, people say, well, that just means a separation. And once again, I wholeheartedly agree. We even see that in James chapter 2, verse 26. Uh, the body dies. It talks about the separation between the body and the spirit. Uh, for example, even when you look at this Greek word historically, what we see from like Homer, for example, through the Hellenistic periods and into Greco-Roman thought, the vast majority of the time the word death was used, it referred to just what we understood as death, a normal, ordinary, and physical death. It's the body dying and going out of existence. Uh, Throughout the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the vast majority of the time it refers to that same ordinary death. So when we just put all this together, we have to ask, what exactly then does the Bible mean when the Bible says that the wicked are going to die, when the wicked are going to perish, when the wicked are going to be destroyed? What does it mean? Since it can be both, what does it mean? Well, of course, my buddies, they believe that it means a continuation. Here's the fundamental problem, and I don't know if you can see it yet, Lee, but if this is my only argument right now, What would be the major problem with using this as an affirmative to prove that people continue on to exist? Well, death doesn't necessarily, it it, in and of itself doesn't mean the continuation of existence. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So just proving that a word doesn't necessarily mean complete destruction also doesn't mean to imply that it will continue to go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So when the Bible talks about there being a lost sheep, am I to imply that that was an immortal sheep? <laughs> when, when, when the Bible implies there was a lost coin, am I to imply that's an immortal coin? When the, so when you begin to see these things, what you're seeing is that these are actually more arguments that already are have a presupposition built into them And that says, okay, well, I already believe in eternal life for everybody. Therefore, how do I explain the words destroy and perish and death? So there's already a sense in which there's a framework, a paradigm that people are already working with that is not actually supported by these words themselves, but are only explained if you already believe in eternal conscious torment. Yeah, it's begging the question is what it is. And, you know, that's a term that's used a lot in... Whenever we use the term begging the question, so often we use that term to mean, well, this question then naturally follows, or well, then that begs the question. Begging the question is a logical fallacy in which the conclusion of your premise is automatically assumed to be true. And whenever you're defining death and destruction and perishing to mean that it's eternal conscious torment, 
you're begging the question. You're assuming that that's what they mean immediately. And then you're, you're just, it's a, it's a type of circular reasoning is what it is. Yeah. So here is why I believe these words should be understood in a literal straightforward way. And I know you had a question before I get into this too, about the idea of understanding something in a literal straightforward way. Well, yeah, you know, before we hit record on this, we were talking about literal, straightforward reading of Scripture. And in other podcasts, we've talked about how a literal, straightforward reading of Scripture won't always lead you to the direct meaning of what Scripture and what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through Scripture. You know, you've got to dig a little deeper. You've got to get into the context. So I'm sure that there will be some listeners who will say, well, you know, you're saying that context is everything and a literal straightforward reading doesn't always work, but now you're saying just a literal straightforward reading. So how do you delineate between those two? Yeah. And I think, I think part of using context is to determine when to use a straightforward reading. It's not that we should never take a literal straightforward reading. It's that when we do, we need to make sure that we're doing so within context. And, you know, the example that you and I were talking about beforehand is, 2 Timothy 4.13. Now, if I go to that passage where Paul is telling Timothy to bring his cloak with him and his parchment papers, there's no reason for me to believe that cloak there and parchment means something else. I don't have any theological reason to believe that Paul is speaking in signs and symbols or that Paul is 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 meaning to 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 rep- to use those to represent something else. Based upon the context, it seems pretty clear that what Paul is saying is, hey, you know, can you pick up my cloak and parchments when you come? I mean, that's that's what yeah. it sounds like. So when you look at, as we've already seen, there are passages that we don't need to take literally and straightforward, like the ones we just talked about in Revelation. But when we come to these passages where Jesus is talking about death, and he's talking about destruction, and he's talking about perishing, are there any reason to not take these literal within the context? Now, I believe the answer is no. I think we should take these literal, and here's why. I'm not just saying that I have reason to believe that. The first reason is because Jesus doesn't just use these words. The Bible doesn't just use these words. It gives us paralleled descriptions of what these words mean. So, for example, being cut off from the land of the living, being burned up and ceasing to exist. These are found in Psalm 11, 1 through 7, Psalm 34, 8 through 22, Psalm 34, 1 through 40. Uh, Psalm 58, Psalm 69, 22, when Jesus used the illustration of Isaiah and he talked about how the the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die and how he utilized that passage from uh, a very well-known prophecy in Isaiah, how everyone would have understood that was death, that was destruction. So it's not enough to just say Jesus is using these, that's the case closed. Jesus is using other Words. Jesus is using illustrations to show what kind of destruction this is. This isn't just a loss of, of quality. This is complete destruction. We see other passages, cut down like grass and wither as the herb, Psalm 37.2. A chaff that, that the wind blows away and is no more, cut down and thrown into the fire and burned up. We see that in the gospel accounts, Matthew 3.10, Matthew 3.12. Matthew yeah. 7, 19, even Jesus says that. Uh, Luke three seventeen and Matthew 7, 19, John the Baptist and Jesus talk about that. So if I were to tell you that you're going to be destroyed, that you're going to be perished and you're going to die, and there's going to be no more, would what kind of imagery comes to your mind? Not a continuation <laughs> yeah. of, of any sense. And so second, the words that are used 
to contrast death and destruction also prove that this death and destruction would be literal destruction and literal death. For example, Matthew 7, 13, 14 says that the broad way leads to destruction, the narrow way leads to life. Jesus in no uncertain terms said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the destroy, but whether, but whether fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so we see this over and over that life is contrasted with death and that destruction is contrasted with everlasting existence. So we, we see not just these words being used and not just descriptions of these words, but we also see that Jesus is contrasting these words with something else that is literal and meant to be understood. Otherwise, here's the problem. Think about this. Are you ready for this? Because this is a very important question for people who are listening. Hit me. If in the same context, we can't look at passages where Jesus says that we're going to have eternal life, and if we want to say that that eternal life literally means eternal life, but then say eternal death doesn't really mean eternal death, how can we then turn around and say that Jesus really means eternal life? That's a really good question. So if 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 in the same context, life means life, it's only fair to say death must mean death. Otherwise, we're saying that on the one hand, Jesus is calling life literal, but death figurative. And now you're you're doing all sorts of linguistic gymnastics to try yeah. and get to the point you're wanting to prove. So constantly and consistently throughout the Old Testament, the Bible contrasts the righteous with life and the wicked with death. The wicked will be perished. They'll, they'll perish, they'll be destroyed, and the righteous will live forever. But here is the, the main point, okay? Death never means, nor does perish or destruction. These words never mean a continuation in any sense, and I already alluded to that earlier, proving that the word destruction doesn't always mean to cease to exist at that moment does not mean it also means to continue on forever. <laughs> These words never mean that. So yeah. the Bible says that in the first death, the body dies. There is no consciousness in the body. It's a lifeless corpse that's going to decay. And here's where people get all, uh, I guess you could say, I'm, I'm not going to say upset, but here's where people get frustrated with their yeah. own argumentation. Because on the one hand, they're going to say, well, that's physical death, not spiritual death. And you've probably yeah, heard I've that heard, before. Yeah, that's I've spiritual that, yeah. death. Okay, here's the problem. When you go to Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The Christians that I know who believe in eternal conscious torment do not believe in physical bodies. They believe that those are going to be destroyed. They believe it's just the spirit that's going to be left in some way suffering and burning forever and ever and ever, which I will say most people nowadays take a different view anyway to what that means. But... Yeah, they, they will argue that the body's destroyed and that the body is no more. But then they'll turn around and say, but the soul continues to exist. If if God wanted to teach that he's going to destroy the soul and the soul's going to die, what more, lang what more, what clear language and in what more way could he do so than to say he can destroy both body and soul in hell? Whatever he's going to do to the body in hell, he's going to do to the soul in hell. So if, if you don't believe in a literal body in hell... You also cannot believe in a literal soul in hell because he's destroying both of those things. But even if that's the case, what about God breathing life into humanity and all of us being God's image bearers? I mean, doesn't that in and of itself imply that we all have eternal souls? So, no, so no, it doesn't. Um, what? Oh, come on now. Come on. So I'm, I am convinced that all of this comes back to a belief that was that was handed to us through 
Greek thought, pagan thought, that we have immortal souls. Because if, if it can be proven that we don't have immortal souls, none of this is even an issue anymore. We don't yeah. have to try to, to, to wrangle verses to prove that people are going to, that the wicked are going to live forever because the Bible just teaches that they don't. I was just in a conversation with a guy and I said, well, can, can you give me a, a verse where the Bible says that the wicked are going to live forever? And the response is, well, here's a few verses where destruction doesn't necessarily mean destruction. That, that, that doesn't answer the question. Where does the Bible teach that the wicked are going to live forever? I don't even have to prove the wicked are going to be destroyed if, you, if someone cannot prove that the wicked are going to live forever to begin with. So go back, ask your question again so I can, I can really hone in on it. Well, the idea is, is that in, at the moment of ensoulment, whenever, whenever God breathes life into humanity, we are made in the image of God. We are his image bearers. And doesn't that in and of itself imply that we possess an eternal soul? Okay, so no, no, and and here's how I'm going to respond to this. So I've heard people also say, you know, we're made in the image of God, and so being made in the image of God means that we we're going to live forever. He 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 at that point imparted immortality to all all human beings. The problem with this is that I could just as well argue that since I'm made in the image of God, I cannot sin or I cannot lie, or that I have superpowers because I was made in, the, in God's image. So these assumptions are bad assumptions because what, what, what you're doing is you're projecting what you want into the image of God. So you're saying, well, because I believe in, eternal, in, in the eternality of the soul, in immortality, then I believe that's what God did to me when I was born. Well, I could say, I believe that I'm all-knowing, and I believe I'm all-knowing because God, <laughs> I was made in the image of God, and God created me in His image, thus I'm all-knowing. It just doesn't work. But I'm actually going to take your question, because I know this is the last one that we've planned on, and I'm going to show from this question, and we purposefully ended on this question, why this actually proves that we are not eternal beings. All right, so here we go. When you look at the creation story, it illustrates that humans are not created as immoral beings. It actually illustrates that, and here's why. It demonstrates that God is our source of life. So he did not include immortality into our human nature. Okay, He did not give us immortality. He, he did not embed that into our human or spiritual DNA. I would go as far to say that it is the fact that we can know we are not immortal beings because this emphasizes the point that God is the one who must give us and sustain us when it comes to our life. Now, how do I know this is the case? Well, when you look at the story of Adam and Eve, and whether you believe this is a real story or whether you believe it's a parable or whatever you want to believe. All right. <laughs> That's, most coming people, later. That's coming yeah, later. Most people listening probably believe this is a real story, as do I right now. So I'll, I'll we'll just kind of take it at that. But so Adam and Eve would not die as long as they were in the garden with God, where the tree of life was. However, when they sinned, they were expelled from the garden. And on that day, their life source was cut off and they began to die. So no longer would, would they be able to continue on as they had. They're going to be kicked out of the garden. They no longer have that life source, and they started the death process. And, of course, we know that Adam and Eve eventually died. So an, an angelic-like creature, though, comes into the story here. And we're like, okay, why is there this like angel, angelic-like creature? Like, what, what's, what's he doing? Well, he's put in place to guard the tree of life, and here's why. Lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. And this is in Genesis 3.22. Now, 
wait a minute. If if Adam and Eve had eternal life, why would God be concerned with them coming back in to partake of the tree of life so they can have eternal life? It's because they did not have eternal life. Their punishment was not eternal conscious torment. Their punishment was being cut off from the source that was keeping them alive. Since sin has entered the world, the Bible says that we must all die. However, we know the story of redemption. Because Jesus died, we can once again live with him forever. But when we compare that, we see that the wicked are not promised eternal life, only those in the grace of God. Now, this gets very interesting because people always want to define words. And this is what people say, Lee. They go, well, all that, all that is physical in the garden. None of, that, none of that's spiritual. Actually, <laughs> actually no. When you see the tree of life and what got cut off, that is the same tree of life, whether it's a literal tree, which I doubt it is, whether it's a literal tree or symbolic tree, it's the same tree of life that's going to be in the book that we see in the book of Revelation. Yeah. And it's that same life source that is going to keep the people who are in the book of life alive for all eternity. And those who are not in that book are not going to have access to the tree of life. And when you don't have access to the tree of life, what happens? You die. You die. And so Paul actually brings this up himself in Romans 5 and 6. He discusses the idea of sin and death, and he goes back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden to discuss this concept. And so if we want to know what it means when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, all we have to do is do what Paul did and go back to Genesis. What does it mean, the wages of sin is death? Well, according to Genesis 3.22, it means not living forever. That's what it means. It means not living forever. So... Otherwise, if we if we come to these passages and say death doesn't really mean not living forever, we are literally in, in, interpreting these verses in a way that is contrary to Genesis, is a way, is a way that was contrary to the Jews, and is a, in a way that was contrary to the way Paul utilized this understanding. The well, wages. It, oh, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead, brother. Well, I was just going to say the wages of sin is death, and if we are not covered in the grace of God, then we will have to pay for the sins with death. And Genesis 3.22, death means not living forever, as opposed to living forever, as we see in Revelation, with those who live forever will be able to partake of the tree of life because God is sustaining their immortality. Well, and to me, this entire stream of thought and this entire conversation is, to me, it illustrates just how powerful presuppositions can be because there are so many people that believe in that what you refer to as the traditional view of eternal conscious torment, and they don't really even know why they believe it. You know, if you ask them why they believe it, they'll say, well, because that's what the Bible teaches. But I mean, if nothing else, and, and this may not be persuasive enough for some people, and that's okay, because in the end, your view on hell isn't what's going to keep you out of heaven. If you believe in eternal conscious torment, you're not going to stand before the judgment seat of God. At least it doesn't seem to me that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and you're going to be disqualified from entering into his rest because you got it wrong as to what's going to happen to the wicked people. And it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's so refreshing to know that our salvation doesn't rest on having a perfect understanding of all these things that people way smarter than you and I have wrestled with for hundreds of years or even thousands of years. And, but at the same time, it's it's so interesting to me that we tend to draw lines based on concepts like this. Whenever so much of the reasoning that we use to uphold some of those traditional positions are suspect at best, it's 
it's sad, really, if you think about it. I, I do want to bring up one more point because I know we're already past the time, but this is actually something that um, I, I, I ran across a lot. I forgot to mention this. I just saw this in my notes that I, I do want to at least touch on this because you're, you're talking about presuppositions. And the hardest presupposition to get over in this conversation is that the Bible, or not the the one to get over, but the hardest thing to accept is that the Bible never teaches that we have that God grants everybody eternal life, and that's very hard to get around. The presupposition is we all have eternal life. That is so hard for most people to to come to grips with and dealing with and saying no, that's actually not what the Bible teaches because. We, we have been ingrained, most of us, from if we grew up in, in any form of Christianity, that we all have an eternal soul that's going to spend either, uh, that we're going to, that's going to be spent in either hell or heaven. And so we've been taught that forever and ever, you know, for ourselves. Hey, I just said it forever and ever and ever. Seeing that I'm using figurative language here. So we've been hey, taught that. Hey, look at that. So we, we've, <laughs> we've been taught that for so long that it's hard to, to come to grips with the idea of, oh, wow. Like, we actually don't have eternal life inherently. That's something that God has to give me. That is something that God has to sustain me with. And by the way, I want to make this point. I believe that it is actually a very self-centered almost ideology. And I'm not, I'm not saying people who hold it, but the ideology itself, because what it's saying is God has given me this eternal life. And now it's mine. Like now I, I possess it. Now I have it. No, no, no. You don't have eternal life. God is the one who's keeping everybody alive. And the only reason I'm going to ever have eternal life is not because God gave me some sort of chip in my soul as a battery pack and, and, and that I'm able to just now say, God, I don't need you anymore because you've given me this. The source now comes within my eternal life that I'm going to experience in heaven is not going to be a result of what comes within. It's going to be because of what comes without from God. God's the one who is giving me that eternal life. Eternal life is not embedded in me. And so I believe this position actually puts more focus on God as being the one who is giving us life and sustaining us through all eternity versus God almost kind of just handing it to us and saying, now it's yours, go do what you want to with it, as if now I, I have eternal life inherently. No, no, no. God is always going to be the one who is keeping me alive. There will never be a time that I can live outside of God keeping me alive. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I wonder, though, what your thoughts would be on this. And I know we've gone way over time. I mean, here we are trying to keep it at 30 minutes, and we succeeded a couple of times, and now we're <laughs> failing miserably. But, you know, the idea of that eternal soul, I mean, couldn't we maybe take a nuanced approach with that and say that, yes, First Corinthians are, 15. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do are the, we do possess that soul and we do possess that eternal life where that eternal life could be our default setting. If we ascribe to follow after God and we, you know, choose to pursue him in his grace. And yeah. And whenever we sin, we default that gift. And then our soul is then bound for eternal destruction. I mean, is that maybe a nuance that would work in this? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I don't mean to, you know, get, I don't want to split hairs because I think I agree with everything what you're saying because what people are probably going to do is, like, is go to like 1 Corinthians 15 and say, well, God says we're going to get new, you know, celestial bodies and, and will those bodies not be eternal? Yes. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like we're not going to have eternal life. I don't want to go the other way. But ultimately, God's the one who 
who, who is going to be granting that to us and continuously keeping us alive, right? Okay, so yeah, it's going to be yeah. God, the only the only reason that those bodies are going to do us any good is not because of the body itself, but it's going to be because of the giver of that body who is sustaining us throughout all eternity. Does that make sense? So in yeah. other words, it's it's not so much because some of this is splitting hairs and more semantics, but it's I, I believe the focus all throughout. Christianity has always been on God is giving this to us. This is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Even our new bodies that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, these, this is all still a gift from God that God himself is going to be keeping us going forever and ever and ever and ever. It's not like God can say, okay, I've got you got your new body. Now I'm going to leave. This is it. It's He's still that life-sustaining source. And in the, the figurative nature that we see in Revelation, as we talk about that symbolism, that tree of life just as in the garden was there. And it was that tree of life that was representative of, of God's source to keep them alive, if you will, that that was their access to, to life was through God and only through God. Um, let's go ahead. No, I was going to say that point that you made, though, about this being sort of kind of a self-centered theology, maybe in a passive sense, that, brother, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's, And I never have really thought about it that way, but it really does seem to hit the nail on the head, especially when you become entrenched in legalism. Because when you're entrenched in legalism, and yeah, there's that word again, um, it's one of those things where it's it's all on you. It's like, look at what I have done. I've deciphered the code. I've figured this out. I am the author and finisher of my faith instead of Jesus. And no one's going to come out and say that, but that's certainly the implication that that is centered there. And it's it, it really is something that that's worth considering. I, well, I think it, it's powerful. It, what it does is it takes a different approach to what I believe the Bible teaches about life because we're almost downplaying God's wonderful gift of life because instead of saying, wow, this is life only reserved for those who are in God's grace, we're like, yeah, life, uh, God gives that to everybody. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. no, like God is only going to give those who are in his grace eternal life. Like this is a special, special thing. Even the fact that we're breathing right now, God has all given us all life, but we have all sinned as humans. And so because of that, we are all going to die, uh, you know, barring Jesus coming back, but we all are going to face a physical death. And that is because of the result of sin. The difference is Jesus is going to resurrect us back and he is now going to only give the, the righteous life, but not just life, life eternal and the wicked are not going to get the gift of life again, much less the gift of eternal life. And so this almost, the, the traditional, I would call the traditional view of hell, almost kind of makes this not so much about God giving us life as it does God just making sure we don't go to hell. And so it completely yeah. turned, it, 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 this makes a new framework of theology of God. I was even talking to someone not too long ago about this, and they go, you know, well, that just takes away, if, if what you're saying is true, then what's the point of Jesus dying on the cross? It's like, what? The point of Jesus dying on the cross so we could have life, like not, not just to save us from hell, but so that we could have life. And so the, the focus on a lot of the views of hell when it comes to the eternal conscious torment ideology is that Jesus is not so much giving us the gift of life as he is just not giving us the punishment of hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and whenever you look at it in that framework, like you said, it really does turn it on its head. It really does change everything because rather than operating from a place of fear, oh my goodness, I better follow God and I better follow Jesus and I better do all this because if I don't, I'm going to go straight to hell. It, it really changes it whenever you look at it in terms of the carrot versus the stick. 
it's, you know, instead of that, you're saying, wow, look at everything that God wants to give me. Look at the gift that he wants to bestow upon me as his child. I can live a more abundant life, not only here on earth, it won't be free of trials, but a more abundant eternal life in the hereafter. And to me, that speaks volumes. That's a, it seems to be a whole lot healthier of a framework to pursue and to live under. And it makes you really appreciate the grace of God because brother, you don't deserve that. I mean, I do, but you don't, no, I'm teasing. You know, I don't (laughs) deserve that. I mean, none of us really deserve it. And yet God in his grace still provides the means by which that can be attained through Christ Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's dude, it blows your mind. Well, and, and especially when you start looking at this from uh, a completely Christocentric framework, because you see some of you, you go back and you think about some of the arguments that we've addressed and some of the affirmative reasons that I've given for annihilationism and both uh, alleged rebuttals that I have attempted to give to show that uh, eternal conscious torment is, is not true. Something else, though, that I do want to end on, because this is a question that sometimes people bring up, and it's because of this presupposition of of the soul. We all have eternal souls. Is this same word, destroy, is uh, is used all throughout to talk about trying to destroy Jesus. Matthew 2.13, we see, I already brought that one up about Herod. Uh, we also see Matthew 12, 14. This is when the Pharisees were upset and they conspired against Jesus, how they could, how they might destroy him or kill him. And then also Luke 19, 47, it says that when he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the leading man among the people were trying to destroy him. Uh, and then some parallel verses would be Matthew 27, 20 and Mark 3, 6. Um, one person brought this point up. They said in each of these instances, the word here means only to destroy physically. Uh, but since Jesus is God in the flesh, uh, then all obviously God himself can never truly be destroyed. And what's what's interesting about this is that this is that projection I was telling you about before. We're trying to project our own understanding on what these words mean, because these individuals didn't even believe Jesus was God. So when the text says that they were trying to destroy him, they didn't understand it as, oh, well, he's God, so he can't be destroyed. <laughs> they understood we're trying to cause this man to cease to exist. And so that's why it's so important that we understand and, and, and that Jesus did die for our sins. Because otherwise, when, when you get into trying to defend the idea of eternal conscious torment, I've, heard, I've had people back down and say, well, I guess Jesus probably really didn't die. And, and, you know, Jesus couldn't have died and all these other things. Well, if Jesus didn't die, then he really didn't do what he said he was going to do. And if Jesus really didn't die, then he's really not the Messiah. So these are some huge implications we have to be careful. And I'm not trying to create oversimplified false dichotomies here, um, because I know that you and I both have been guilty of doing that before, and we're not trying to be unfair to anybody. But either Jesus, either people were trying to destroy Jesus or not. And if people were trying to destroy Jesus, meaning to take away their life, his life, people say, well, that's only physically, that's not spiritually. The scriptures don't distinguish the two when it comes to destroy. God says he's going to destroy both the body and the soul. That's both physical and spiritual. And so when you appeal to these passages and and people may come back and say, well, that's only physical, physical death, not spiritual death. Well, the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, both. It's destruction of the body and the soul. So my question is, if the soul is not existing and the body's not existing and the Bible is not going to says that you don't have eternal life, what part of you 
is existing in any way. And these are this is kind of how I would summarize this. If you still believe in eternal conscious torment, that's perfectly fine. You're going to go to heaven if you trust in Jesus, despite um, ho- holding that position that I don't believe is correct. You're still good, and I, I could even be wrong. But here are the questions that you have to to come to grips with. Number one, if the wicked are going to live forever in hell, why does the Bible never teach that they have eternal life? And where does the Bible teach that the wicked have eternal life? And the simple answer is it doesn't. There is no passages that teach the wicked are going to have eternal life, only the righteous. So that's the first point in summary. The second point, if the if the wicked have to be in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in order to appease God's wrath, and that's considered justice, why did Jesus not have to suffer forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in order to appease God's wrath, which is justice? If God could be a just God and not torture Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for the sins of the world, then what kind of God is it who does not have to torture somebody but chooses to anyway forever and ever and ever and ever? That's a very hard question for people to have to come to grips with. And finally, um, the bottom line is, if I would just summarize this, if the Bible teaches that the wicked are going to be destroyed and only the righteous are going to have life, what other way, based upon everything we've said, could the Bible have communicated, if it wanted to, that the wicked are going to be destroyed and the righteous are going to live forever? What other ways, what other metaphors, what other words could the Bible have used? Well, I think those are all really powerful questions. To me, that second question is the most powerful. But I think this has been a really good discussion, and I think that's a really good note to end on. We've gone like triple the time we wanted to spend on this, but <laughs> but that's okay. It was a great discussion, and I, I really hope it gives our listeners some food for thought. And it, I mean, it's definitely given me a lot of food for thought. I mean, this is something that I've never, like I said at the beginning of the last episode, this is something I've never really studied this is something I've never really spent a whole lot of time thinking about. So I appreciate the time that you have taken to elucidate this. You've done the vast majority of the talking with this episode and the last one, just simply because I don't have a whole lot to add besides just kind of asking questions and goading the conversation along. But do you have anything else that you want to share before we bring this up to a close? No, I mean, I think that that's it. And I know there's always going to be questions and that's just part of us growing in the faith. But I would recommend if you really do want to dig deep into this, the book, The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge, because it's about a five, I think five, 600 page book. And it is going to go through every single passage one by one and give you in-depth commentary. Uh, I mean, rebuttals, it's, it's going to get into questions you didn't even think to ask. Because I know when I was studying, I'm like, oh yeah, that's I didn't even thought to ask that question. I mean, it's going to go into so much detail. Uh, he gets into the Apocrypha. He gets into the Pseudepigrapha. Um, he, you know, if you don't know what that is, then clearly that means that he's really doing his research then because he's really <laughs> going into depth. And so, um, you know, he just he really brings in a, a just uh, a dynamic to this study that is I'm just so thankful for because it has been able to help a lot of people. And he he's he, he was an attorney. He actually passed away not too long ago, but he was actually an attorney. And uh, he oh, I'm trying to think of when he wrote this book. But I want to say maybe. 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't know, somewhere around there, maybe. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's a f- phenomenal book. Once again, it's called The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge. Definitely worth picking up. I'll definitely check that out and add and it And interestingly enough, list. for our audience, if you care, he, he was a member of the Church of Christ. Hey, there you go. How about it? So for those of you that have listened, we thank you. 
ever so much. For those of you that haven't listened, you're not going to hear this anyway. We don't thank you. But no, we thank our ever-present listeners. We thank our audience. Thank you all so much. We uh, ask you to share this podcast with your friends. Give us a like on Facebook. Share it on social media. Listen on the platform of your choice. We're working on getting this podcast expanded to some other platforms as well. So um, reach out to us if you have any questions, if you have any topics you'd like to hear us cover, let us know. And we look forward to being with you again. We wish you all good night and God bless.